And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. The U.S. men's national team, a massive 4-0 victory in Orlando against Panama, now control their own destiny in CONCACAF qualifying. Uh, my name is Carter Krishnayer. His name is Neil Blackman. This is the Yanks Are Coming podcast. Uh, Post-Panama, pre-Trinidad and Tobago, another vital game for the United States Tuesday night in Port of Spain. And Neil, you were uh, at Orlando City Stadium. It's great to have uh, the national team here in Florida. Uh, Touch a little bit on your your thoughts about Bruce Arena's tactics and and how he got it right. And then um, Hernan, who's taken two previous teams to the World Cup, right, in in, uh, Colombia and Ecuador, uh, was hired by Panama specifically to get them to the World Cup, deciding to go all-out attack in a game where they just needed a point away from home. And, and Panama now uh, faces, I don't want to call it a desperate situation, but um, a difficult situation. Yeah, uh, let's, let's start with Panama even. And, and Well, let's start with this. That was in my eight, now, now eighth year of covering the U.S. national team. Uh, that was the best qualifying atmosphere I've ever been, been in. It was the loudest soccer venue uh, I've ever been a part of, and I mean, you know, it did it did the Southern college football culture that surrounds that area and our part of the world uh, quite proud. So, well done, Orlando. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because I've been I've been in the stadium for MLS games and for USL games. You've been in the stadium for NWSL games as well. Um, it gets loud, Neil, but nothing like last night. Nothing like no. last night. No, it's wild what happens when you put the American Outlaws on that supporters' wall. Yeah, right, on the wall, right. Um, in terms of Panama, you know, the press conference with Hernan, was, uh, Hernan Gomez was extraordinarily contentious. and uh, There was one, you know, about five-minute, I don't want to say it was five minutes, it's probably a three-minute exchange, but if you think about it, that's a really long reporter-journalist exchange where a reporter said, you know, you named your roster two and a half weeks early, and this is the plan that you came up with. You know, explain to the people back home why, positively why this was your plan. And this journalist kept interrupting Gomez in his answer and being like, that's evasive. That's evasive. This is what my, you know, mediocre Spanish is picking up on. But, uh, he keeps saying it's evasive. And what was interesting was, so Gomez looks at his press officer for like relief, you know, like tell him, Hey, are we going to move on? And the press officer just lets it continue. So that was kind of telling. I mean, I think that, uh, Gomez, so Gomez botched it pretty badly, and I asked him, you know, what was with the high line? Because that's not really what they do. And he, that reporter was right. They had two weeks to kind of figure out what to do. I thought his formation with two forwards was bizarre. Yeah. I thought, I thought using Blas Perez as a starter when he's older and historically has traveled the United States off the bench was bizarre. I thought that, you know, and it, it was obvious well, that they got it wrong because they had to make a tactical substitution in the 25th minute, right? Yeah, and you know, the funny thing about Hernan Dario Gomez is I covered um, him managing Guatemala against the United States in the Gold Cup in 2007 in Los Angeles. I, went, I flew out there for that game. Uh, that, those were the days when I used to cover the national team the way you do now, follow the <laughs> national team around. So I flew out to L.A. for that. We had two games in L.A., so I, I covered both games. One was... Uh, um, Guatemala, the second game was against a TNT B team because there was a boycott because Jack Warner hadn't paid the players, if you remember that. And Gomez, 
talked about in the post-game press conference in that game. That's 10 years ago now, granted, and with a far less talented side. The need away from home to absorb pressure, and that's what they did. They absorbed pressure the whole game, um, and then the U.S. got a goal from, uh, I think it it may have been Brian Chin, uh, if I remember correctly, and then... um, you know, then Guatemala started attacking, and, and uh, Bob had to bring uh, Jay DeMarin on, uh, a fifth defender, to soak up the pressure. But that he talked about spending 60 minutes absorbing pressure to keep Guatemala in the game. His managerial philosophy 10 years later with Panama, and maybe it's because they've had so much success against the United States. And we remember the game in Philly, right? In the Gold Cup, the third place game where Panama had 15 shots on target or whatever. Yeah, well, both games that tournament, but yeah, specifically the one in Philadelphia. Yeah, where Brad Guzan had to make a a number of ridiculous saves. Perhaps (laughs) that lulled him into the sense that he could have at the U.S. And of course... Those were Klinsman's U.S. teams, not arenas. That being the key difference, tactically. Yeah, and I think that's that's the segue, right? Like, I mean, the high line was was crazy, and the amount of space that they gave the United States with the high line was even more odd. And arena, um, well, let, let's let's back up and say we both agree that Bob Bradley's paw prints are all over this plant. I think. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> But the choice to to Chuck Nagby in uh, kind of not underneath, but as a shuttler with Pulisic at the top of sort of a modified diamond, and then you know that makes sense. But what was what was brilliant was flooding the midfield with numbers because they made Panama respect him centrally, which does two things, right? It slows Panama's transitions down because you have to have the right shape to counterattack. And when everybody's helping in the middle in order to counter, it takes longer to get back into your counterattacking shape. And the other thing is, uh, you know, it allowed the U.S. instead to do what Panama wanted to do, which was to pressure and, you know, attack on the break. Uh, while Panama tried to probe their way through a crowded midfield. So I thought, um, you know, I just, I just thought that it was a tactical masterclass from Arena, who has got uh, the tactics right more than he's gotten them wrong, hasn't he? Uh, since yeah. he's taken over again. No, I, I think uh, Arena has generally gotten the tactics right in every game. Every, in the Gold Cup was B team. It was B team versus B team. I, I don't really look at that in qualifying. I think every match he's gotten the tactics right. Now, you could argue uh, the Costa Rica game in New Jersey, he got uh, the squad selection wrong. I would also argue you had you were playing a better team, and when you play a better team, your guys need to have a certain level of intensity, even if they get set up properly. And the U.S. lacked that, that intensity and, and made these sort of silly mistakes, defensive errors that... Uh, you can't coach out of guys, right. right? You know, you can't you can't set up a, a squad and, and a team sheet and um, and account for three or four horrific defensive errors, which is what happened. Sure, so, and, and even in that game, in the U.S., if you you know, I mean, I know people. This doesn't fit in with the talking points, but but the narrative uh, that that Arena got the tactics wrong. Is is refuted largely by the metrics, right? I mean, the U.S. chance creation was way better than Costa Rica's. Yeah. Um, the U.S. had more shots; they had more possession. I mean, they should have won the game, but you know, you're right. They made three or four huge defensive errors. Grimsey had a bit of a howler, and uh, Tim Howard wasn't very good, and Kaylor Navas was, so they lost. Right, and that's thought, uh, that's a that's a significant difference. You're talking about. I know we all love Tim Howard, but you're talking about going up against Real Madrid's number one. So, guy who's won the Champions League two straight years. You don't. Right. Uh, exactly. There's not a more accomplished goalkeeper in the world who's not named Gigi Buffon or Emmanuel Neuer right now than Taylor. Right, and, and you know, and I thought, yeah, I mean, arguably the worst match for Arena was the Honduras match. Yeah. And, yeah, that's the questionable they, one, right? The one down. Yeah, I mean, and they corrected Dula. that last night, right? Yeah. I mean, they moved Pulisic back, back centrally, which I think. I mean, you would agree that, that any debate about whether or not he should play wide for the United States has to be over now. Yes. <laughs> it's clear his influence centrally is desirable. And as, you know, I know Karnick and I are both people that watch Dortmund play. And, you know, it, first, just 
the complimentary pieces that they have, dynamic players they have, along with Pulisic at Dortmund. Yeah, you don't have Gutsa or Royce or Yarmolenko or Aubameyang yeah, exactly. on this U.S. team, right? And that, that's just to name a few. I mean, it can keep going. Um, so I, I don't know. When you say he plays wide for Dortmund, it's because you've got good – when Gutsa and Royce are healthy, which I know is often not the case. Correct. You have those two guys playing centrally, Yarmolenko on the other wing, and Aubameyang up top. Uh, that leaves really one place for Christian Pulisic to play. Uh, and then he can cut in from the, from the wing. And there are times that you'll see, when you watch uh, Dortmund play, you'll see uh, Yarmolenko and, and Pulisic switch wings. You'll see times when, when Goetze pushes wide and, and Pulisic pushes in, in or uh, Max Philippe pushes wide. Um, it's a much less dynamic set of players. That's not to take shots at our talent level, but it's just the reality, right? We don't have yeah, Exactly, and, it, and that's that's the great point that you make, is that, you know, just because he plays there doesn't mean he's not a number 10. And in fact, you know, I think Michael Cox, somebody that we both <laughs> admire, has, has identified him as one of the best young number 10s in the world, yeah. right? It's just, it's just that with the club that he's at and that the system that they're in, he's not asked to do that. That's fine. Right, right. Dortmund's number 10. Currently, when he's fit, is a guy that uh, scored the winning goal in the World Cup final <laughs> in Brazil. Let's keep that in mind. That's why Pulisic plays wide when Goods says fit. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, that, and, that, and not only do they have him, but I mean, we're talking about a club, multiple players who are among, you know, the best young players yeah, in Neil, the world. I did, so. this, I did this last night. Uh, after the game, I actually, out of curiosity, decided I would compare BVB's team to Bayern's. And I think I tweeted it out this morning. We're taping this Saturday morning after the game. I actually think that uh, Dortmund might have a more talented team than Bayern right now. Now, a lot of those guys are under the age of 21, like Pulisic and others. Uh, they've sold Dembele now to Barcelona. But um, they have such a talented, stacked roster. Uh, it's difficult to, to, to see Pulisic playing consistently as a number 10 there. This, this having been said, this also is part of the reason why I think he's developed so quickly, his skill set, because he's had to play out of his natural position, now under two managers, under Tuchel and under uh, Bosch, the new manager at Dortmund, and he's excelling, and that's, um, he's developing this skill set where he's able to, to, to play out wide, cut inside, um, and use both his feed and his immense dribbling skill to, to create space. And it's, yeah, and you saw you saw it on the the second U.S. goal last night. Yeah, on the Altador goal. How he can use how he can use both feet, um, and and the way that you know even when he gets forced out wide, which is actually what happened on that play, he's perfectly comfortable out there. You know, using using the left foot, which is on the you know the inverted side that he's at at Dortmund, and then of course he plays this <laughs> dynamic curling ball in. To uh, to Josie, um, you know, yeah. I mean, I think I think that's part of the thing. Part of the reason I think his ceiling, for example, might be higher than an Mbappe. Um, not not that Mbappe's not better right now. Okay, it's just a is that he he is doing that, and it's it's not two managers really. It's three because the role he plays for Arena is so much different. Yeah, right. So there's there's a cross training element to that too. He reminds me so much of Coutinho, and I know American fans are going to roll their eyes and be like, Coutinho's not, you know, one of the best players in the world. Well, first, nonsense. Of course he is. Uh, <laughs> but he might be like, there might be more to him than that. What do you, what kind of, <laughs> he might he might have a higher ceiling than Coutinho. Yeah. No, no, I think, I think he very well might. And I think the, the, the thing with Coutinho that we found uh, at Liverpool Maybe not so as much for Brazil. I'll admit I haven't watched him as much for Brazil as I have for Liverpool. He drifts in and out of matches. And sometimes if Coutinho is playing too centrally, he can be marked out of matches. I don't see that with uh, Pulisic. Right. No, that's and that's that, exactly. And I, I think, you know, that's the benefit from being forced to do it for the national team um, when he's not necessarily required to do it at Dortmund. Right. Is that you know? There's just so, there's so much meaning in uh, repetition, and you know, Coutinho is brilliant for for the select, but he 
He's got, he other, also, he's got other guy complimentary pa- uh, talents yeah, around exactly. him. Whereas he's also US... required to do all the work. So I've got I've got to ask you now about the U.S. midfield. I think my my takeaway from last night, uh, and it's been the takeaway from the last few games. I mean, I've I've been very defensive of Josie Altador on Twitter. Maybe it's uh, it's a uh, South Florida thing, right? I mean, it's it's a guy that I covered <laughs> since he was 13 years old, watching him. Uh, defending that guy, but I think there were things that he's done off the ball that have kept the United States in games uh, that other guys aren't doing, and, and I think people finally saw the, the, the end product of that yesterday, and then the, the, the tandem with Bobby Wood um, means the United States is going to continue to play with two strikers, I think, because they, they, their interplay is so good and their work off the ball is both so good. But the midfield I'm concerned about because I, I just still feel like in the post- Kyle Beckerman, post Jermaine Jones era, and unfortunately there weren't ready-made replacements for either one of those guys. Um, you're having a situation where poor Michael Bradley's having to cover too much ground and do too much work. And I noticed, uh, obviously, in the second half yesterday, uh, Arena made a tactical change. Arena had obviously observed this, too, because the first half, even though it was 3-0, I think he probably was unhappy with the amount of time and space uh, Panamanian attacking players, particularly uh, uh, Quintero and Godoy when he would push forward were getting on the ball because um, Nagby and Ariola weren't tucking in. Uh, I saw yeah. that tactical change made in the second half, but is there a case to be made? I think Ariola was tremendous yesterday. Is there a case to be made that maybe against better opposition than Panama when you're not at home, because you're not going to have any more competitive matches now at home uh, through this cycle, you have someone other than Nagby who's going to uh, complement Michael Bradley shape-wise a little better in, in that team? Yeah, I, well, look, you've, uh, you're right. Arena did mention that he thought that the U.S. gave up too much space in the midfield large swaths of the second half. I actually tweeted out a distributional map with a heat map also of Bradley last night. And yeah, I mean, it was a really heavy heavy ask for Michael. Now, he did it. Um, and, you know, Arena was asked by Charles Pope. who was excellent. Uh, you know, yeah, one of the best it, in the business. Yeah, was it a gamble to, to ask that much of Michael? Like, it was obviously a pretty heavy lift in that formation, and Bruce said, yeah, was. We thought he could do it, and he did. But we also realized about the 50th minute of the game that we needed to give him some help, which had more to do with, he said, we were going to bring in McCarty regardless. It just happened that we brought him in for Pulisic because, you know, we didn't want Christian to continue to get fouled the way he was getting fouled. But, right. but uh, yeah, so, so they did. I think, and this is why the this formation, as nice as it looked last night, you know, maybe it's a three-five-two at the end, right? Just because I think there's value in getting an Ali Bedoya out there, just somebody else that will show for the ball. Oh well, that's that's was going to be the next point I was going to make was that I am still concerned. I mean, I hate to take uh, negatives; or it's not really negative. Just talking points out of this game so that we can evolve the level of play going into the World Cup, going into yeah. the next year. And a tough game at Trinidad and Tobago where you're going to need to keep, keep the ball in midfield. I, I still think the only guy in our player pool that I have faith can do that is Alejandro Padoya, who's been largely forgotten by the, the supporters' base, but hasn't been forgotten by Bruce Arena. And, and I just have this sense, even though people uh, get frustrated every time he gets selected for the national team, that he's going to be on the plane to Russia for that reason. Well, Ali's terrific, and I know you and I, you know, we can go ahead and just acknowledge, like, you know, if people think it's biased because we're South, South Florida, Indians, right? Yeah, again, that's fine. Yeah, you can think that doesn't mean that he's not a really good player. The thing that Ali does, I mean, I've already said he shows for the ball, he gets open. Um, but the other thing that he does is. You know, Ali's kind of, it's a little bit like Ariola in the sense that he's content being a role player. Like, Ali will play a through ball, and instead of charging down to, to make the secondary run behind it, right, like, he'll peel off and let someone else make that run because he knows that if something goes poorly, you know, you don't want to get caught out on transition. So he's not, like, a glory seeker, really. 
Uh, and I think that's important if you're going to be the guy that kind of is the intermediary in the midfield between Christian Pulisic and and Michael Bradley. And I have to mention and, this. You know, we we get accused of bias, right? But um, Ali <laughs> Bedoya is such a legend here in, in Broward County and Fort Lauderdale, where, where we both hail from, that uh, the strikers' ownership group, the now-failed strikers' ownership group, when they came in, they used as their bona fides – uh, it, to, to manage a, a local professional club in this area, the fact that their managing director had somehow had some sort of relationship with Alejandro Bedoya. That was their talking point to, to create right. legitimacy. That's how, that's how popular that player is in, in our area. So maybe we are a little biased, but um, it's, it's for good reason. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, this, so, and I think you're right. I don't think that there's not a lot of people in the pool that check that box, which circles us back to Darlington Bank because this is, it's a point I made in the Yanks for Coming preview um, that I wrote, and it's a point I only briefly visited last night because I wanted to heap some praise on DeAndre Yedlin, who we'll get to. But um, it was kind of like I have only so many paragraphs of points to make, and I thought you and I might talk about it. Nagby has not, like, I get why he's consistently selected. I get that he is a technically wonderful player in Major League Soccer. Um, I haven't seen anything from him against a quality opponent <laughs> that says this is a guy you continue to put in the starting 11. I thought he was fine for 20 minutes last night, and then they brought in Armando Cooper, and I thought Nagby kind of either was a defensive liability uh, because he couldn't handle the physicality of the extra Panamanian midfielder, or... Um, that he just kind of gets lost. Yeah, his touches frustrate me too. I think he makes it. I've noticed this. I remember having a, a last conversation I had with our, our, our dear friend Simon Evans before he, he moved back to the UK uh, in March was about Nagby was one of the topics. And uh, I had actually, um, I, I had, you know, we, have, we were having a discussion about Klinsman, and of course Simon was more defensive of Klinsman than I was. But I said one of the areas I defend Klinsman on was Nagby. I, I saw a guy that, to me, was still very raw in his decision-making for whatever reason, as talented as he is and as technical as he is. Very uh, raw in his decision-making on the ball and then his positioning sense off the ball. And that, honestly, Neil, hasn't changed. And I think, No, he, he was right. It's that, wasn't he more decisive in the first 20 minutes than you yeah, thought last night? Yeah. Oh, okay. You know, he gets it. In fact, in the first five minutes of the game, he made a very decisive run and then played a ball out to Ariola. And, and, you know, in all frankness, Bobby Wood should have scored. Yes. And and just pushes it wide. But we didn't – it's like that lasted for 20 minutes. Panama brought on an additional midfielder, and then that was it. Which is why, again – Ali Badoya and Fabian Johnson, those two players, Fabian Johnson wasn't on this uh, squad, uh, Badoya is. Uh, both those guys are going to continue to be, I think, in the mix because Nagby is limited in what he can do. And that's just, again, pe- people, some people interpret that as a shot at Major League Soccer and the development system in the U.S. It's not. It's just a reality. Yeah. He's a limited player. Uh, there are some incredible assets he brings to the national team, which is why he's been starting the, some of these key qualifiers. But there are limitations that when you play different styled opposition on, on a neutral site in Russia, you're going to need a Johnson or you're going to need a Bedoya or, or both. Uh, to- and, and that's that's where we should we should both, because we both have been full of praise for Rita, and I think rightly so, point out that I don't have a problem with Bruce giving Darlington these looks in these big games. You know, because there's nothing that Nagby does on the field necessarily that I think is is like a red flag, get him out of there, right? It's more of, you know, hey, this is a guy that has a lot of technical proficiency, and, and you can see that there's something there from a quality perspective and a vision perspective that, that the U.S. has been lacking really since Stu Holden was hurt, but but he hasn't shown it against anyone good. And I think Arena keeps playing him precisely because he feels like he has the pieces around him where, you know, that's fine if, if Nagby doesn't perform up to optimum expectation. And also because, you know, Nagby gives great effort, I think. Uh, but I, some, I, I think you're right. It's just decisional, right? Puts a lot of, uh, on Michael Browning, puts a lot on 
uh, Villafana or whoever's yeah. playing that left back position, whether it's Villafana or Beasley or, uh, or, or Fabian Johnson, whoever plays back there, I think has greater responsibility than the right back does. But let, let's shift to the right back because I think you saw the difference in this side. Uh, Graham Zussi is a gamer. He, he, he's a keeper. This is the kind of guy you want on when you're naming a squad for an international tournament where you can't swap players out in the middle of the tournament. Graham Zussi is the kind of guy you take to uh, Russia. Uh, uh, like Ben Olsen was a guy that um, Arena took in 2006 who could play in multiple places because Zussi has such a, a diverse skill set. But pace is not one of those things. And... Um, <laughs> You saw the difference with DeAndre Yedlin. I mean, I think there's a probably – I can't remember the specific instance. You probably remember it better. There's probably there's a sure shot on target, maybe a goal for Panama, that if it's not Yedlin at right back, if it's one of our other options, I think Howard either has to make a save or Panama equalizes 1-1. Yeah, Blas Perez. Yes, yes, exactly. And he just – I mean, Yedlin ate him alive. Uh, and this was – this was, what, six days after the play that he made on Salah. Oh, the play he made on Salah was amazing. Uh, and which, saved yeah, the point I mean, for was... Liverpool in that game at, at St. James Park. I saved the point Again. for Newcastle, excuse me, against Liverpool. Well, sure. I mean, Rafa Benitez isolated the play after the match and said it was a world-class play. So it's not an American podcaster calling something world-class. So you guys can take all your hot takes out on Rafa. Yeah, right. I, I'll, I'll put Rafa's opinion up against just about anyone in this sport. <laughs> but, uh, but okay, so so let's talk about it. Because there's two things with Yedlin that I think are, are super important. You've identified pace. That's the first one. The second one is the larger development point that, that you were making uh, rather forcefully on Twitter yesterday. Uh, which is that the U.S. had these four years or so of lost development. Yedlin's one of the players from that kind of lost generation. Uh, Ariola's on the edge of it. And I think, I think Paul, who we can get to, he'll be gone from MLS soon. I think he kind of came back to D.C. to make sure he had reps and visibility. Before. Yeah, yeah, before the World Cup. And um, I, I should point out, I, I hate to do this, and we'll, we'll get back to Yedlin's play and development of the yeah. Allardyce and Benitez in a minute. But as I look back, I don't. I don't like to give Klinsman credit for a lot, but I think his stretch, and it was a stretch in 2014 in April when he called DeAndre Yedlin uh, after a good rookie season with Seattle at the age of 19 into the U.S. camp for that friendly against Mexico, and we're thinking, what is he doing? And then he names him to the World Cup squad. Um, I think that was, in hindsight, a brilliant long-term move. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think Yedlin and Wood are, are his as a manager. Those are his legacies, and then I think, I think that yeah, you know yeah, a lot absolutely. of the things he said about technical direction are, are correct. But that's probably for another podcast. Um, but but so this is why you go to Europe, okay? And and it's not Nagby and and Yedlin are kind of great contrast in that respect because. DeAndre Yedlin, the MLS player, had electric pace, was eh, service-wise. Now, to be fair to MLS, Yedlin was 21, and players tend to get better. Um, Not always, though. Not always in MLS. I think there's sometimes a cap. Uh, yeah, no, I know. I'm just saying, just generally, you're right. But, but you know, oftentimes, weaknesses are short up, especially if you play for a good manager like a Peter Vermees or, you know what I mean. Right. Um, right and he's so, playing for Siggy, so I think that's one of the better managers, although yeah, I, people right. will he's argue playing. about that now because just the results for the Galaxy in particular since he took over. But I, I think Siggy, in terms of developing players, I would put his his CV up against just about anyone in, in U.S. soccer uh, other than maybe Bob Bradley. and Bruce You Lee. know, I would too, and that's an interesting point, right? Because when I talked to DeAndre... Thursday, you know, I said, what has changed? And his two-word answer was Rafa Benitez. <laughs> yeah. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, it's just, he said, it's just night and day in terms of my understanding of uh, the game from just a defensive awareness standpoint. He said, I feel like, he said, I feel like before I was instructed to get in certain positions and I tried to do that. And Rafa's making it more instinctual. 
Like, and and so you know, there's muscle memory to it. And he said, you know, Rafa will will only tolerate, you know, <laughs> the absolute best in terms of of where you know what what you're expected to do. I mean, you will execute it or you will not play for him. And uh, you know, it was a really interesting five to ten minute conversation that, that he and I had. And I thought, um, you know, you saw it though, but you saw it against Liverpool this weekend and, and you saw it last night. Edgar Barsanias is one of the better wingers at CONCACAF. They had to yeah. remove him from the game. <laughs> he was rendered entirely ineffective. And, I mean, some of that was tactics and formation, but some of it was they thought that they could exploit they watched video and thought they could exploit the US flank over there and you know newsflash DeAndre Yedlin is leagues better than Graham Zussi although Zussi to your point another point we were making effectively on Twitter yesterday you were on fire was uh, was uh World Cup squads aren't always built with, like, your greatest players, right? Like, Graham Zussi is 100 times better in a locker room than Timmy Chandler or whatever. Yeah, th- this is the point I think so many fans don't understand. They look on paper and say, well, this guy's playing at Borussia Mönchengladbach. I guess I'm saying uh, players specifically. This guy's playing at Eintracht Frankfurt. This guy's playing at Sporting Kansas City, so you pick the guy in the Bundesliga. Yeah, that's what you would do if you're picking a team on paper or a fantasy team. But th- that's not how it works in international football. For a tournament, you're, you're basically trying to recreate a club atmosphere for three or four weeks. And again, I mean, we've bashed, we bashed Klinsman a lot on this site and on, on this sh- uh, show in the past. But he took Brad Davis to Germany, uh, to uh, Brazil. I, would, I wouldn't have started him against Germany, but he took him to, to Brazil because he was that kind of guy in the dressing room. He felt, okay, here's a guy who's going to get along with everybody. So maybe I take this guy instead of someone else. Managers make those decisions. Uh, Bruce Marina did it with Brian Ching in 2006. He picked Brian Ching over our dear friend Taylor Twelman uh, for that reason, I believe, was that he thought yeah. he was just better in the dressing room and Twelman would be a guy who expected to play, right? Whereas Ching was a guy who maybe didn't expect to play. And sure. yeah, didn't play, uh, but know, was good in the dressing uh, room as the 23rd absolutely. guy. I, I think Zussi is a future head coach. Um, I think he... Well, he's a guy that has perhaps a, a if his hometown winning. club were Orlando City, right? He's got a game. He's got a game-winning assist in a World Cup match. Yep. Um, yeah, there's just infinite value to that. I think one of Graham Zusi or Dax McCarty will make the World Cup team. My guess is it will be Zusi. By the way, like I don't know if, and that's why it was cool to see Dax have that moment last night, right? Where. He gets to play. You know, it's also the World Cup qualifier at in his home. Hometown. At home, right? And I think uh, that's. I, I think there might have been an evolution in thoughts on Dax because Bob Bradley was assisting, as, as we've all, as we've talked about already, with uh, this tactical plan with Arena. And I know from talking to Dax's former coaches. I, I know again, Dax is another Florida guy. I know most of the guys. He played for in Winter Park and uh, uh, with the, the Central Florida Craze and PDL, etc. And they've told me that they felt like Bradley didn't didn't see the value in Dax when he was a national team coach because he was looking for a guy to flank Michael Bradley to flank his son that was able to either win the ball or. Uh, was a very technical player, so that you get, that left you your options of Rico Clark, uh, Benny Filehaber, or Marisa Du. Um, question, right? Or question, right? Sasha being the technical guy like Filehaber. So then, eight years later, you have Bradley assisting the seven, uh, six, seven years later with a tactical plan with Bruce Arena, and I saw the the kind of uh, Bradley fingerprints on Filehaber being called in, right? Uh, but when a push came to shove, Dax got the call also and got put in this game. So I think maybe there's been an evolution in thought about what Dax now at 30 can do, which wasn't thought about when he was 21, 22, coming out of North Carolina, starting with FC Dallas. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. You know, I think, I think he may end up ultimately lost to the, to the you know, Weston McKinney should the U.S. But all this is contingent on what happens Tuesday. <laughs> oh, yeah, clear. no, we should transition to that in a minute, right? But, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, so, so, you know, wrapping up last night, just a marvelous performance, a marvelous atmosphere. 
a really a tactical masterclass. We didn't get into Paul Ariola. We can at another time. Um, I think more than any player last night, he kind of very briefly would be the guy to me that gained the most. Like we kind of knew that Pulisic had that in him. We know who Bobby Wood is now. We know who Altidore is. Look, right, again, I've been who, jumping up and down. Maybe it's my bias, but uh, right. this is not an <laughs> unexpected showed, performance for me. From yeah, him. I mean, Yedlin showed how much he's improved, but I don't think his starting position was ever in doubt. Paul Ariola is probably the guy who gained the most just because I can't see removing him from the field when he's fit. Um, <laughs> he just does too many valuable things that impact winning. Right, which is why, um, just to close up, if there's one guy I bump from this squad, uh, not not from the squad, but from the, the, the first 11, it's, it's probably, again, Nagby. But that's a conversation for another day. Let's transition to Trinidad and Tobago. They looked very good for 70 minutes with, with kind of a youngish experimental squad. Last night at Azteca, took a 1-0 lead. Uh, there were some uh, uh, handbags and then a little bit of a, a, a some some um, uh, argy bargy. Mexico then equalizes. They take the lead, and I think the 88th or 89th mean through Chicharito, uh, a, a goalkeeper spills the ball, and then uh, at the death get a third goal on a free kick, which was created because Trinidad down two one were trying to uh, counter quickly. So. Uh, I thought a pretty good performance. I watched most of this game pretty closely. A pretty good performance from Trinidad, but in very classic uh, style of the of Trinidad or Jamaica, you know, the top Caribbean nations. They can play they can play toe to toe with Mexico, the U.S., Costa Rica for sixty five or seventy minutes, maybe even outplay them, and generally fall off. We've seen that through the years with these Caribbean sides. Um, Kevin Molino, by the way, uh, came in around the 55th minute and, and played well for, for 20 or 25 minutes in that midfield. You're going down to Port of Spain uh, for this match. Uh, it's going to be in a smaller, more intimate venue than we're used to down there. Uh, right. Trinidad has a historical grudge against the United States in this sport with final qualifiers of CONCACAF qualifying. Uh, we don't need to restate that history. I think everybody knows it who's listening to the show. Uh, what, ki- what can we expect down there? Well, the Atto Bolden is where the game will be played, Atto Bolden Stadium. Um, and I think just from a pitch perspective, it's probably nicer than Hasley Crawford is. Um, you know, Hasley Crawford is really a track facility where they just happen to play yeah. national team matches because of capacity. Whereas Atto Bolden is not a cricket stadium, it's a soccer stadium for their Premier League. Um, so that's a good, that, you know, that's a good sign. Um, the one thing I'll say about it is that the floodlights aren't great, so it'll be kind of, it, it could be kind of dark. Uh, but, you know, whatever, that's that's part of these games and environments. Um, I'll be interested to see what the crowd is like. Obviously, Trinidad fans knew that they were all but officially eliminated going into Mexico last night. Um, and I'm sure they had dreams of somehow sneaking into to, uh, a playoff, but they needed a lot of help to, to accomplish that. And any result by the U.S. would have eliminated them, regardless of what what happened. Right. Uh, my understanding last night was that, as you said, Molino came off the bench. I guess Jovan Jones came off the bench. Jovan Jones came off the bench, and, and I have to say, did not play well when he came off the bench late. Okay, so yeah, I mean, it looks a little bit like their manager was saving a little something for the return trip, understanding yeah. that due to Hurricane Nate their travel back was going to be a little more complicated, apparently. Yeah, I don't know how they're going to fly back, honestly. I mean, I guess they well, might I have saw, to stay in Mexico tweet, for an extra day. Yeah, I saw a tweet by John Arnold, the uh, Cole.com writer who does a great job covering Mexican soccer, who said essentially that um, they rerouted, basically they rerouted a lot of their flights. Like, what their federation did was just rebook them so not everybody's traveling together. Oh. And some of them as early as 6 this morning were on planes to various locations in South America where they could then kind of slingshot around 
the storm and go to Trinidad, which is one of these weird places in the Caribbean that is protected from hurricanes just based on geographic Yeah, because it's so far south, right? I mean, they never get hit by hurricanes. It's the only place. Right. They've, they've been hit by one in 100 years. Right. Um, so uh, if you're picking a Caribbean island to live in and you're from Florida. <laughs> but but uh, that's interesting. It's interesting that they like that the MLS contingent was saved. The U.S. are more familiar with those players. One player that, that has stood out at least in the last six months, is uh, Levi Garcia, who uh, is kind of an attacking hybrid wing center mid. He can he can play as an attacking central mid. He can play on either wing. Nice young player. Yeah, he's a, he's a very good young player, uh, and, and they have a number of these guys in the squad. A guy who played well last night that I want to single out is Kareem Moses, who was playing left back. Uh, who's bouncing around NASL for a few years, a player I'm very familiar with. He had a very good game. Uh, was uh, impressed by him, uh, held up with the pressure of Azteca. Uh, there's, uh, you know, it's very weird because Mexico beats Honduras, which I expect them to. They're going to have the most points in the history of the hexagonal. And yet there's some sort of lethargy around Mexican support. And I, I can't help but think that, and I, I, this isn't a topic for another podcast. I'm sure we're going to get into this, but there's still a xenophobia around enough of their fan base that they don't, they won't accept Osorio and his work uh, with their national team in a proper way because he's a Colombian whose football education right. is in the United States and in and in England, and he just doesn't fit the Mexican uh, culture. And uh, I, I just I don't get it. But well, I, you I know said what? That again I don't either. Yesterday. And and smart journalists, you're obviously one of them. But uh, other other very bright American soccer journalists are great. Mean, uh, I know Charles, who we've already referenced, has has said that on multiple occasions. Uh, for all the the problems Osorio had managing New York, no one ever doubted that he was a good manager. I think that he just tried to do some things. He also was there the year before they moved into Red Bull Arena, and they were building a new stadium. They had gotten to the MLS Cup final the previous year, and right. there was just you know kind of a malaise. Now he had brought um, uh, he, he he had brought some players in maybe that were not um, uh, at the level, and he had tried to get Wilman Conde, if you remember the Colombian player that he had signed for Chicago before he yeah. left from Chicago to New York. There was a lot of bad blood about him. Um, in those days, you didn't sh- you didn't take you didn't have one MLS job and shift to another. I mean, it was a very kind of insular league that way, and every team was was attributed to be kind of at the same level. And when you have Osorio make the decision that he's going to jump to New York from Chicago, uh, implying New York is a better job, and he replaced Bruce Arena, who had been fired there, um, people people were furious about it, saying, "Well, that's not the way our league works." Well, Osorio had been a uh, an assistant with the Metro Stars previously under uh, Octavio Zambrano and then before he had gone to Manchester City, before he got to Liverpool. So um, where he worked under Julia and then worked under Kevin Keegan at, at Man City. Um, it, I, I think that there was this, this kind of um, misinterpretation of that last year in New York. I think he did a, yeah. he did a fantastic job with Chicago. Uh, I don't think anyone will question that. And then uh, did a really good job his first year in New York, and it, and it just kind of fell off. He's, um, I, I guess, Mexico is just never, and maybe maybe we should appreciate this. Mexico is a country in, fo- in a footballing sense that perhaps feels like Unlike other Latin American countries, they should be uh, able to hire exclusively domestic managers like Argentina and Brazil do. They don't have to be a country that exports. So many countries in Latin America export either Argentine managers or, or import, you know, bring in either Argentine managers or Colombian managers. And so many countries in, uh, in uh, the rest of the world bring in either German managers or Dutch managers, right? It's, you know, just like this stereotypical thing um, that... Maybe Mexico has this feeling that, hey, we should never have to bring in a Sven Joran Eriksson or a uh, La Volpe, you know, he was Argentine, or, or uh, a Sorio. They've all got, the three guys I've mentioned have all gotten enormous backlashes from their fan base and have been held to 
That's a great point. Different standard than That's Mexican a great point. Sure. And I, I think they've been burned a little bit by them too, right? Uh, right. Right. Prior prior to Osorio, the success of the of the previous ones was not of the level of expectation. The other yeah. thing that it, it's just fair to say is that you know, sometimes they're ridiculous. Yeah. Putting it bluntly. I mean, because uh, you've isolated it. I mean, they're they're one victory away from the best performance in a hex ever. It, a draw actually secures it as well. Yeah, right, you're right, you're right, you're um, right. So, you know, they're, they're going to beat the 2006 U.S. mark. Um, and I think what's crazy is that, you know, what they'd rather talk about in the press is that they drew the U.S. at Azteca and they're the, the first U- Mexican team I can remember to ever get results in a World Cup qualifying cycle, both in the U.S. and in Costa Rica. I don't, right. I don't think in this era that that's happened, honestly, as I think offhand. I mean, they, they never get results in Costa Rica, and they never get results in the U.S., actually. So No, and they were mad. They're mad about the Confederations Cup, but, you know, the reality is that, that yeah, I mean, Osorio got the tactics wrong in Germany. That happens to a lot of people, though. It was against Germany, <laughs> Who's against right. I mean, Panama? You know, Who's against Germany? Because it, but here's the thing: he's in the. You're in kind of a double bind if you manage Mexico, because if you don't go out and try to play the attractive, stylish brand of football that they expect, then they're going to criticize you, even if you grind out a nil-nil against Germany. Right? Look what happened when they tied Brazil at the World Cup, and everybody went nuts at how terrible they played. Yeah. Uh, well, when in fact, I think oh, if it hadn't been for some uh, dodgy officiating in that match, they would have won on Brazilian soil. Right. In right. the World Cup Brazil was hosting. They would have won that game, and the press reaction at home was, hey, Ochoa was wonderful, but why did we play so negatively? <laughs> it's like, well, perhaps because you were playing Brazil in Brazil at a World Cup. Right. Which I think gets uh, so, back to the point of now the U.S. and the Azteca result. They see this Arena U.S. team again uh, counterattacking and playing on the break. And to them, that's anti-football. And they can't get past that. And, it, it, and I, I at least have to say, for their, in their credit, they're consistent. When, they, when, the Mex- when Mexico does it, they call it out. But I think the Mexican media, there's so many of them, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of two things. One how football is played in this era where uh, the teams are more athletic and stronger and when you're facing those teams, sometimes you have to play, play negatively and look for space and play on the break. And secondly, there's a complete misunderstanding and misinterpretation of their place in, in the global game. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling for Osorio because oh, I, feel like, I, I, I feel like this is a, a Mexico side that has the talent and the players love it, which also should be emphasized. Um, I mean, I think I think that you know. I mean, you listen to Chicharito or Leun uh, or even Diego Reyes See, talk but this about is the thing. So many of these guys now, Mexico has a problem that maybe we've had in the past. Now we have more and more guys back in MLS, but Mexico has so many guys playing in Europe. They're uh, used to a certain professionalism among their managers and yeah. among their management team. Osorio having spent uh, as much time as he did in England, uh, learning from uh, Gerard Hooley at Liverpool and Kevin Keegan at, at Manchester City, all totally spent about five years uh, in the Premier League uh, as an assistant, uh, understands how match preparation, how you man-manage, all those things that guys like... Uh, well, I mean, I can tell you this from uh, having interacted with Chicharito when I made my made a trip to uh, Bayer a couple of years ago when he was still there at Bayer Leverkusen. Um, th- these guys are very European in the way they take care of their bodies, the way they prepare for matches, yep. the way they expect Excellent to point. train. Uh, and that's something that when you have your classic Mexican uh, league coach – that they don't necessarily have that now. There now nowadays there are more and more coaches in uh, Liga MX that have come Liga MX that have come from either Brazil or Argentina or have come from have managed in Europe at some point. So that's changing, but it's the same thing we have with the mentality around um, MLS coaches and some of the guys who come back from Europe in our pool. So I think it's perfectly understandable. But uh, continue as you said, the players love. No, the they do, and I mean you know if you talk to I mean. 
Miguel Leon told me that it was, you know, that I, I, he basically threw Tuca under the bus because the, the other thing about the Mexican players is that they're very candid. Yeah, well, Tuca's <laughs> a classic doing, Mexican when coach. doing English interviews. In uh, obviously, he's a Brazilian, uh, uh, born in Brazil, but he's a classic you know, Mexican uh, league lifer, basically. Right. I mean, he said, you know, it's just it's just different. You come into a camp, there's no expectation that you won't play if you're a guy that doesn't play. Right. Which was, you know, Tuca had his guys and every manager does. But but the fact that that Tuca had, you know, basically would play almost the same 11. And that's all. That's the expectation. Mexico is like, oh, well, we know who our best 11 or 12 players are. I don't understand why Osorio is not playing them. And Hernandez says it's it's incredibly helpful. I mean, they they can go and win in Columbus because everybody feels fresh. They're not they don't overtrain. Um, and I'm pulling for them. I, I feel like this is a Mexico side that can reach a quarterfinal. And then you know we all would agree that that just from a pure talent standpoint, you know, if they got into a quarterfinal. You know, Uruguay can reach a semifinal, so why can't Mexico? Because right. there's not a huge distinction. Costa Rica reached a quarterfinal. They they almost reached a semifinal. There's sure, not... I mean the United States. You know, now nearly... you could argue Costa Rica's top line talent in 2014 is the best we've seen in Concacaf in some time, but they didn't have the depth Mexico has currently. And, and exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. And that's the thing with Mexico is that there's so much that that is such a deep team. Um, and there's no high-level players like Navas or like Uruguay, obviously, and Florida, right. I believe Suarez, uh, among others. But, but uh, you know, there's no reason that they couldn't have that breakthrough uh, in Russia. Yeah, so uh, obviously Trinidad and Tobago Tuesday night, uh, and uh, simultaneously or around the same time, you'll have uh, uh, Panama playing a Costa Rica team that has qualified for the World Cup. Congratulations to them. Four World Cups in five cycles. Amazing for such a small country. If it wasn't for Johnny Bornstein, it would be five and five. Um, so thank Jonathan Bornstein for that. But uh, that's kicking off simultaneously, and uh, or almost simultaneously, in Mexico, Honduras. Uh, Honduras... Uh, we're taping this before Honduras plays Costa Rica. Yeah, that was going to be my last note, was that that game's tonight, Honduras and Costa Rica. And also probably a nurse to Panama's benefit just because they'll play the Ticos on very short rest. Yeah. Now, historically, Panama has had this issue of uh, choking on the big stage, going back to the 2005 Gold Cup final. I, I, I remember a two-leg tie against El Salvador where they should have wiped them out and, and lost to them and were knocked out of qualifying for 2010. And then obviously uh, Panama City against Zussi and Johansson four years ago and then the semifinal in Atlanta of the Gold Cup, which probably was out of their control. They probably should have won that game against Mexico. But they And now Orlando. They have this pattern of... of choking on the big stage. My question, and this affects the U.S., to you is, after talking to uh, Hernan Dario Gomez yesterday, as you did in Orlando, do you sense they'll get it back together for Tuesday? Or is it now all just come apart? Well, I mean, he said all the right things. You know, he said, uh, you know, obviously we get to return home to Panama City. And, you know, if we win, we feel confident about our, our chance in a playoff. Um, we feel confident about our chances of reaching our, our first World Cup, and that's still the goal. Uh, Roman Torres kind of echoed those sentiments. Um, and they play Australia or Syria. They can't play so open. I hope they learn that if they're in the yeah, playoffs. Yeah, I mean, certainly in Syria they can't. Um, and then, you know, Australia is kind of weird because they should be better than Syria. They did get the big away goal, but at the same time, you know, they tied Thailand at home in order to actually have to be in that situation. Right, so right. they're not that good, if we're really honest about it. So um, other than Aaron Moy in midfield, they don't have yeah. the level of player. They, they've got a generational thing right now like the U.S. also, and, and their league has gone through some some retooling. It's... um. I mean, it, it just still amazes me if you, if you compare. And this is for another show. We're going to have a bunch of shows before between the last qualifier and the World Cup, obviously, to discuss this sort of stuff. But when you compare Australia, the U.S., and Japan's development path, how um, for some reason Japan seems to have gotten everything right. We've gotten about half of it right, and Australia is beginning to get everything wrong. 
Uh, right. Even though all three countries right. arguably started at the same point, 20 years no, ago. No, it's a great point. And, you know, yeah, I mean, they don't have a Pulisic. Um, yeah. <laughs> not many people do. They don't have a Shinji Kagawa. That's another guy I right. forgot from Dortmund. <laughs> you know, Dortmund is just loaded. That's why Pulisic plays out on the wing. But they don't have a Kagawa Shinji, like Japan Shinji does. Kagawa is, is one of my favorite players. Klopp and, says he's one of the best players in the world. He's, he's really wonderful. Um, but yeah, I mean, so this isn't like, this is a playoff they could win. Remember, they were, the one time they didn't really choke was the 2013 Gold Cup final where they played toe-to-toe with the United States. And in the end, it was just Landon Donovan's brilliance yeah. that that resulted in, in Brexit's uh, moment in the sun. <laughs> yeah, Panama actually played really well in that game. They might have been the better team for much of the night. When you I, I ask Breck Shea if that ball was going in... I always it. forget that Shea actually scored that goal. I was... You said Landon Donovan's moment of brilliance, and then I'm thinking, yeah, right. And, and then I forgot somebody actually got a touch on that to take credit for the goal. It was going in. Uh, you know, it's fun to watch it on YouTube, though, and I would encourage people to do that. Is there's one the the actual television feed YouTube clip when when Shea scores, you actually see Donovan go over to, to give him a hug, and just he that Landon is just laughing, and Shea's embarrassed by it. <laughs> you just you stole my goal. <laughs> right, which would which would mean he would have the record all all to himself right now. Um, but see, that's 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 a great game that's instructive of, of the Deli Valdes brothers set up to kind of see if they could get that thing to penalty kicks, trusting that after Donovan, the U.S. didn't really have anyone who who could finish those. And I and, and speaking of penalty kicks, that's the other YouTube video for the next couple days. Will be the uh, the Altador Panica. Yes. Uh, okay. So last thought on Panama. If Panama doesn't qualify, I think they go back to a native manager like uh, uh, like Juan Dele Valdez. You know, yeah. like the Dele Valdez brothers, who um, the great Panamanian players. We saw one of the brothers through an MLS. The other was a star in the J League. Um, I thought it was a little cruel when they made the change after 2013. Um, and quite frankly, they haven't done any better in qualifying this time than they did that time. Uh, it was a it was a harsh decision, and I think if you were around the Panamanian press last night, that was you know that was the sense of of drag creeping in that you know we hired this guy to get us over the edge, and he just makes this master tactical blunder. And for them, um, you know, Bruce Arena kind of laughed this off in the press conference Thursday. But, you know, I'll close with this thought. I mean, this is this is a golden generation for that country. Yeah, this is their golden and generation. this is they've their never, last chance. They've never been this competitive before. This is why I, I genuinely feel bad for them. And, I, and people have misinterpreted my tweet saying, oh, do you not want the U.S. to make the World Cup? Of course I want us to make the World Cup. But that I said, hey, I want Panama to make it. And it's because it's a country that has never embraced the sport uh, thoroughly. It's a country where boxing and baseball continue to be more popular than, than soccer. And um, they've had this one moment in the sun, this one generation and a 10-year window to accomplish something, and they keep falling just short. It's not like they're way right. off the mark. And Exactly. Uh, they have to win this game Tuesday, I think. Otherwise, football in the country might go down the tubes the way it did in Trinidad and Tobago after uh, 1989. It could, and, and as I've written on, on Yanks are coming, I mean, they had just this influx of national investment in the last four years. Yep. I mean, this is a this is a national pride they, project. They have to make a playoff, at, at the very least. They can't be in a position where Honduras gets in over them. Honduras, who is in a rebuilding phase and is only competitive because they have the brilliant Pinto managing them. I mean, otherwise, I think they'd be last in the hex, honestly. It'd probably be behind Trinidad if they had any other manager. Yeah. So, no, I agree. Him and, him and Albert Alice, who you know, has Barca, that I saw that there were Barca and uh, and Real Madrid scouts at the uh, last Dynamo game. Yeah, so that's right. that's that's how good that young man is. But he's again, they have a, they're <laughs> wholly dependent on either really young players like him or guys like Minor Figueroa and Roger Espinosa who are past their shelf life. Um, yes, and that's if Panama doesn't get to fourth uh, over that Honduras team, boy. I worry about football in that country. So, I'd agree. The, the silver lining for them is that they traditionally have played well against this Costa Rica generation. 
Yes. Um, you know, obviously they, they really beat them pretty badly at the Copa America um, last summer. So, uh, two summers ago now, I guess. But nevertheless, you know, we'll see. It, it's very, uh, it's particular. It, it's certainly possible that they could get this done. Yep, it's uh, longer odds than they need to be in. And for, for the U.S. <laughs> That's for sure. They made it hard on themselves. Yes. Uh, U.S., just a draw in Trinidad will do, will do the job. Um, we'll be back with you after that game. I, I don't know uh, when we'll record. You'll be flying back from Port of Spain. Uh, we'll try to do it Wednesday morning for we'll everybody. I'll try to call morning. before my flight. So uh, for Neil Blackman, I'm Carter Krishnar, U.S. 4-0 win in Orlando over Panama. Uh, They're now in the driver's seat, just need a result in uh, Port of Spain, uh, assuming Panama gets a result, right? If Panama doesn't get a result, they're in. And uh, we will be back with you next week. Wherever you go, however you go, for energy on the go, it's gotta be five-hour energy. It works fast, it works long, it tastes good, and with zero sugar and four calories, there's nothing holding you back. Fits your pocket, fits your backpack, fits your on-the-go life, whether you're going to work, going on vacation, or just going out with friends. Five-Hour Energy. Energy on the go. For more information, visit fivehourenergy.com.